All right, guys, thank you so much. Okay, Psalm 73, let me pray for the Lord's help. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in the text quite a lot. It's a long psalm. We're going to preach the the whole thing. Um, And I'm not sorry. This one's really important. It's really important. We need to get this deep in our bones. This psalm is carefully structured into three sections, and that's not obvious in all English translations, but I suggest, if you're the sort of person that marks up your Bibles, to put a little mark at verse 13 and at verse 18, and those are the three main, 1 to 12, 13 to 17, and 18 to 28 are the three main chunks, and we're going to take each one of those in a point. So, it's okay if you didn't follow that. Uh, Hopefully this will make sense as we go. So point number one is the partial picture. It's like the flowers we just looked at with the kids. Number two is the perspective shift. And number three is the full picture. So let's just dive right in to point number one. This is verses one to 12. Let me read. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches." Becca and I were watching Fiddler on the Roof this week, again, one of my favorites. And in Tevye's classic song, right, uh, If I Were a Rich Man, he begins with this little monologue to the Lord. He says, oh Lord, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no great shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. Would it have been so terrible if I had a small fortune? Don't you feel that? My heart sings if I were a rich man a lot, to be honest with you. Last year, 32% of the wealth in this country was owned by 1% of the people. 76% of all the wealth was owned by 10% of all the households. But it's those people who have all that wealth who are actually setting our standard of living. For instance, uh, YouTube. Right In the last decade, uh, there's this new concept called the influencer right? Influencers come on the scene and their name suggests what's actually true about them. They're the ones that are influencing our lifestyle. They're setting our expectations. But these influencers with millions of followers, I mean, one guy, uh, he had a million followers. He made $50,000 in a month last year. Come on. And those are the people setting the tone for how the rest of us should think and feel and set our lifestyles. 
the people with the most wealth are steering that ship in some sense. The psalmist is struggling with that. That's not just a modern problem. But here's the thing. If you don't struggle with envy of wealth, if you're like, you know, financial statistics aren't landing on your heart, please don't tune out now. It doesn't have to be about money. That's not the psalmist's point. It could be a spouse that you want. It could be a different body type. It could be a a stable family that you lack. And everyone else seems to have one. It could be mental health. And you can't seem to get up out of the depression when everyone around you seems to be fine and happy. We don't need um, the, the, the wealth poverty gap to understand the idea of being frustrated with God for what we don't have and everyone else seems to have. So verses one to three. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I work hard. I slog through life. I try to keep my heart pure, he says, and my hands clean. But what good does it do me? Look at the ungodly. Look at the arrogant. I'm out here wiping sweat from my brow and they've got it made in the shade. That's what Asaph is saying. It's a valid complaint. The word prosperity here, the prosperity of the wicked, uh, is more than just wealth. It's the word shalom. It's peace. It's wholeness. It's lacking nothing, which means we're not just talking about money. He's using money as a way to talk about wholeness, right? So he says, I I looked at the easy life of the ungodly and my hard life, and it made me wonder, is God really good to the pure in heart? Really? Because it looks like he's good to the arrogant. Their lifestyle seems to pay off. I resonate with that. He goes on to describe in verses 4 to 12 what the arrogant and the wicked are like. We read that. Summing it up, he says they have no troubles in life. They do what they want, and they don't seem to have any consequences. Their heart doesn't overflow with things like love or wisdom. It overflows with follies. They push others down to lift themselves up, and they gloat and they boast in their own ease and success. It says their tongues strut through the earth. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. His people means God's people, Israel, the pure in heart that he started out talking about in verse one. So God's people turn back and look at the ease and success of the ungodly, and they say, well, they must be onto something. It seems to be working for them. Maybe I should give it a try. Continuing from verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Do you feel the tension that I'm talking about, that Asaph is writing about? He starts off by saying, truly, here's what I know. God is good to his people. I know that. But then I look around and I start to wonder, is that really the case? 
it kind of seems like God helps those who help themselves. He's very frustrated. Later we'll see he's actually furious at God. What he thought was just an envy problem, he thought, I've just got a little, you know, a little, a little jealousy, but I'll get over it, it's fine. When he looked back with some clarity, he said, no, I was raging at you, at God. What he needs is a perspective shift to get out of this, he's too close to the situation. He's just looking at half the picture. So here's the perspective shift. This is the second point, verses 13 through 17, the second section of this psalm. Starting in verse 13, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I'd said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Okay, let's unpack that. The psalmist says, what's the point of trying to keep my heart and my hands clean? Why bother with all the hard work? All in vain have I kept my heart clean. The wicked are at ease, increasing in riches, but every day I'm stricken. Every morning I'm rebuked. We want good. Truly God is good to Israel. Tov, we want good, the sort of good that was in the Garden of Eden. We want shalom. We want peace and wholeness. So we try and we try and we try. And we get our hands into the soil and we toil and we labor and we do all the right things and we check all the right boxes and it doesn't work. It does not give us the good life. It does not give us peace. It doesn't give us peace from depression. It doesn't give us peace from not able to get ahead of your budget. It doesn't give you peace when you can't find a godly partner to share your life with, etc. Our efforts at keeping our hearts pure and doing all the right things don't solve our problems. And he's starting to see that. He's not wrong. And that's what he means by my feet had almost stumbled. He sees all of that, doesn't know what to do with it, and says, I almost slipped off the way of God. I almost fell off this path and went the way of the wicked instead because it seems like it's working better for them than it is for me. And I'm tired. And maybe you've been there. I've been there. Maybe you've been there. Weary-hearted, too tired to carry on because you're not seeing results. So what do you do? Well, Asaph, the psalmist, took a step. It was a small step, but it's something. It's a step we can all take. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, Asaph is recognizing that these thoughts, these ugly thoughts that are growing in his heart, though they feel true, are dangerous. These are dangerous. It's a dangerous road to go down. And if he were to give full, raw voice to his emotions, he would be harming the people around him. It's not wrong to wrestle with our faith. It's not. It's not wrong to have doubts. 
You're not a worse Christian if you doubt sometimes. We all do. And it's not wrong to doubt in community, but it's wrong to rage against God to someone other than God. Let's not do that to each other. What he calls that is betrayal. Wrestling carelessly with our crises of faith can harm the children of God around us. So the first step that he did when he realized that was he didn't stop wrestling deeply. He didn't start pretending like everything's actually okay. It wasn't. Life was hard. He wrestled in the presence of God to God. That's the first step. We don't, have a, we don't have a whole lot of trouble taking an honest assessment of ourselves and going, I'm not happy. Life is not easy. What we have trouble doing is saying it to God in his presence, in worship. We haven't gotten there yet, but if you look down at verse 18, he says, truly you set them in slippery places. The first half of the psalm, he's talking about God. The second half of the psalm, he's talking to God. That's the first step. And God can handle your frustrations. He can handle your doubts. So don't ignore them and pretend like they don't matter. They really do. Wrestle deeply with your faith, but do it in the presence of God and to God. Look at verses 16 and 17, please. This is the, the height of his lament. He's starting to realize this isn't just a minor frustration, this is pain in my life. Even thinking about it was hard. Do you have something in your life that you can't even think about? Thinking about it was hard, verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Do you hear the lament of Asaph? See the ease and riches of the wicked? I want it. I want that. I'm just going to say it. I want what they have. God, how come you're not good to me? Them, really? Like, I try really hard. What they have, that's the good that I want. God, I feel far from you, and your good seems like a distant reality. Do you even hear me? That's the tone. Of the song. That's the Bible. Isn't that crazy? The Bible says that. He found his answer. He found clarity and perspective by going to the sanctuaries of God. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different here for um, Christ Church so far. I'm going to pause the sermon and we're going to join Asaph in his lament and take our troubles and our crises and our frustrations, maybe our anger, to God. So I'll lead us in a prayer of confessing the frustration and sorrow, and then we're going to sing, Lead Me to the Rock, and ask God to break into our perspective and reality with his truth and with his rock-like steadfastness. So please use this moment 
to do more than hear a sermon, but to genuinely take your heart and put it in God's hands. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, maybe not all of us, but some of us, our hearts are overwhelmed. And it's hard to even face um, the deep frustrations that are there. It's easier to act like they're not there. But life is hard. And we carry pain and sorrow and envy. We want the good that you have for us. We want your best. We want to feel loved by you. And we think that you want us to feel loved by you. But that's not always our reality. We often feel far from you. So Lord, hear our prayer. That would be from the ends of the earth. Hear our prayer and have mercy on us.
don't know how to transition from that back to a sermon. I've never done this before. But thank you for doing it with me. What an amazing thing to remind ourselves that we don't have to feel the right emotions before we go to God. We take our wrong emotions and our lack of emotions to God, and he heals us. Let's look again at verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 73. Thank you, Nathan. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. This is the perspective shift. This is the full picture where he begins to see it all. Asaph says to God, verse 26, you're the rock of my heart. He says, verse 28, you're my refuge, like a rocky fortress. God's mercy, God's glory is like a landmark in the wilderness for the psalmist. He can orient himself by the rock. When he centers his perspective on God, he finds perspective, peace, and good. That's what he needs. In his commentary on Psalm 73, Charles Spurgeon said, the motions of the planets appear most discordant from this world, which is itself a planet. But could we fix our observatory in the sun, which is the center of the system, we should perceive all the planets moving in perfect circles around the head of that great solar family. You hear what Spurgeon's saying? It, from the perspective of Earth, things look weird and off-kilter, unpredictable. If you could stand in the sun and see it all, it would make sense. The psalmist found his footing when he fixed his observatory in the sun. He was wearied with the struggle of even how to understand his emotions until he went to the sanctuary of God. Then he discerned their end. I was studying, uh, you know, obviously I was studying this text this week, and that word sanctuary grabbed me. I discovered something fascinating, something important. It's plural in Hebrew. It's plural. So, um, last week we talked about the sanctuary, Psalm 63. That word is referring to, I think, the Holy of Holies, right? This week, this text, that's not what he's talking about. That is not what Asaph is referring to. Uh, you see, in Israel, before there was a temple at Jerusalem, God did have one tabernacle, one special place of worship, but he allowed many other holy places, which is what the word sanctuaries means. Many other places of worship scattered throughout the land. It's where the poor who couldn't travel far could go to worship, or it's where the sojourner who was on a long journey could stop and worship on the way. And here's my point. Asaph says, until I went into your sanctuaries, and you can't go to more, place, to, to more than one place at once. In other words, this is over time. I don't think there's a moment, one little pinpoint moment, where Asaph stepped into a sanctuary and went, oh, I get it. My heart's changed now. It was a repeated, patterned decision, discipline of going into worship. What's fascinating about this is the, the reverse implication. I'm struggling, I'm struggling until I went into your sanctuaries. 
the implication is he wasn't going to the sanctuaries. It seems that Asaph had stopped walking the way of faith, stopped actively seeking out the disciplines of the faith, stopped worshiping God and gathering with his people. And the psalmist found clarity and help and strength from resuming the path of faith. Today, in modern kind of churchy vernacular, we would say using the means of grace. The means of grace. What are the means of grace? Well, the means of grace are the things that God ordained for us to regularly use and which he uses by his spirit to impart grace to us. They're like grace conduits, right? It's not grace itself. It's not the gift itself. It gets us the gift. Does that make sense? So the means of grace are, you know, prayer. Prayer isn't good because prayer is good. Prayer is good because it gets you near God. That's the grace. Prayer is just the means of grace. Right? The gathered worship of the church. We do not do this for our own sake. This isn't just a thing we do because it's good to do. It's a thing we do because God has ordained the regular gathering of his people as a way that we experience his love and his grace. Preaching. Singing. These are means of grace. Reading your Bible. This is a means of grace. Holy communion is a means of grace. Your baptism, that's a means of grace. Means of grace are ways that we get near to God. Asaph had been neglecting them. The most natural thing in the world is when our feet start to slip to respond by neglecting the means of grace. That's what we're all inclined to do. I've struggled with weight all my life. And when I'm feeling particularly dejected and um, like I'm not getting traction in my health, my impulse is not to go for a run. My impulse is to eat a donut or a cheeseburger. Come on. That is natural for most of us. Do not neglect the means of grace, friends. If your heart is cold toward God, distancing yourself from him will not warm you you got to get near the fire if you're cold. Get near the fire. Get near to God. When we diligently practice spiritual disciplines, it's like setting our observatory in the sun. Like Spurgeon said, over time, we begin to see the full orbital patterns of the planets which seemed so out of whack to us from our own perspective. That's the perspective shift the psalmist needs. The means of grace are not the answer to the problem, right? So if someone comes and says, I'm really struggling with depression, don't say to them, well, you should pray more. That's not right. That's not the answer to the problem. God is the answer to the problem. God is the answer to all the things that hurt us and harm us and weigh us down. The means of grace are ways that we get near God. They simply give us the fuller picture. They help us orient ourselves around God instead of around ourselves, and they put our problems in perspective. So with that perspective shift, the psalmist was then able to see the full picture. So that's the last point, number three, the full picture, verses 18 through 28, the end of the chapter. 
Remember, he's thinking about the ungodly, the wicked, the arrogant, the ones who oppress people, who boast in themselves and their success. And he says, when I went into your sanctuaries, I discerned their end. And that's who he's talking about. So he goes on to reflect on what really is the end of the wicked and the ungodly. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So remember, he began the psalm by saying, truly God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But it doesn't seem like that's true. But now, with the clarity that comes from divine perspective, he says, oh, now I get it. I see their end. The path that the wicked are on is smooth. But a smooth path is a slippery path. Life might be easy but that makes it all the more expected for them to slip off the path. They're bound to fall in the end. There are two key words in this psalm that you can trace through and really get the whole understanding of the psalm by looking at them. The words are good and heart. Genuinely encourage you to spend an afternoon, like 40 minutes, and go circle the words good and heart every time they occur in this psalm. And really think on that with a good cup of coffee. Good and heart. The, the, the psalm starts with, in verse 1, good, right? Truly, God is good to Israel. And it then has three occurrences of the word heart. Good, heart, heart, heart. Then the second half of the psalm has three instances of heart and ends with good. So good, heart, 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 good. <laughs> right? That's... The, the structure of this psalm, the pattern. So let's think about that progression then, bookended by good, dealing with the heart, and see where he ends up. He begins by saying God is good to the pure in heart. But the people who have shalom, the peace, are the ones whose heart overflow with follies. That's the tension that we've been getting at. Then he says, well, I've kept my heart clean for nothing, in vain. It's verse 13. But now in this last section, after, after the perspective shift, he starts to change how he sees his own heart. Did you catch that? Verse 21 and 22, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Going back to Fiddler on the Roof, um, Tevye rages at God at the end of the song, If I Were a Rich Man. 
with this verse. He says, Lord who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a rich man? Would it? Like, do you feel that? He's raging at God. The psalmist sees that what at first felt like a valid complaint like Tevye's was actually raging like Tevye. I thought my heart was pure. I thought my hands were clean. But in my envy of the arrogant, it turns out that my heart was bitter toward God and I was beastly toward him. I was raging, furious. So naturally, you would think if God is good to the pure in heart and he's just confessed his own heart was not pure, maybe that explains, maybe that explains why life is hard. No. Uh, Verse 23, he continues on. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Yeah. Remember he said, all in vain, I've kept my heart clean and my hands innocent. And now he says, no, 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 I'm nothing like innocent, but you've held my hand. It's not my effort. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. At first I thought I desired the easy life and riches, all the things that the wicked have, but now I see there's nothing I desire on earth besides you perspective shift. At first, I thought it was always about my efforts at keeping my heart pure. Look at all that I've done. I've worked so hard. But now I see you are the strength of my heart. At first, I thought that the portion I should get is a slice of wealth. But now I see you are my portion forever. Verse 27 For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. At first, God, I thought the good that I deserved from you was ease and wealth. And now I see, now I see, the greatest good is to be near you. That's the good. Nearness to God. Did you notice how similar verse 28 is, the last verse to the first verse, verses one and two? Truly God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. And then it ends with a, but as for me, it's good to be near to God. God has a far better good for you than an easy life. A far better good. I mean, do we want a portion of life? Like, we all want our slice of life, but do we want one that's going to wither and fade and corrode and be consumed by fire? Or do we want one that lasts forever? When you make the Lord God your refuge, when you you get near him by Jesus, you get him forever true wealth that absolutely never fades. So you could sum up the whole complaint initially of the psalmist's heart by this. God, you're holding out from me. You're holding back. 
If you're tempted to think that God is holding back from you, then come back to the means of grace. And don't stop coming. Make him your refuge. Because when you take refuge in God by trusting in the crucified, risen Jesus, here's what happens. You realize, by the power of the Spirit, that God has never withheld good from you. Not once. There is no good outside from him. And he gave you all of himself. You cannot take a good long look at the cross and accuse God of holding out. You can't do it. He may not have given you freedom from depression, financial peace, ease, the spouse that you long for, the family that you crave, but he gave you the most precious thing in existence. He gave you Jesus, all of him. And you can come up while I finish. In Ephesians 2, Paul reflects on this reality. He says this, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, that's my favorite so that in the Bible, right? So here's what God did for you. Here's the reason why God did it for you, right? I circle so that. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God saved you to give you all the good in the universe by giving you Jesus. God is no holdout. He is deeply good. So we can say, um, with that song, I think it's just called Give Me Jesus, you can have all this world. Keep it. Give me Jesus. So what if our path through life is rocky and the path of the arrogant is smooth? Maybe we can learn to love the rugged path that helps us keep our footing. Maybe we can learn to thank God for the storm that drives us to take refuge into the rock of ages. Maybe we can learn to, as Spurgeon said, kiss the wave that dashes us upon the rock of ages. God is our only good, our true good, our one and only comfort in life and death, and everything else will fade. But you have in Christ something that will never fade, a portion forever. He is our rock. He is our refuge. And he is no holdout. Praise God.